0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's take our Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. And if you'd find that text rather quickly, I'd like to read this, and then we'll get into the comments for this evening's message. Uh, This is part of the upper room discourse that Jesus gave his disciples the night before he was crucified, and he was telling them about the Holy Spirit coming to uh, live in them. He promised to come to live in them, and the Holy Spirit would be his spirit in them. So if you look at John chapter 16, beginning at verse number seven, Jesus says to disciples, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away for if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. Now this evening we continue our series of messages on who is the Holy Spirit and I want to start off by giving you the topic for tonight, the heading for the topic of tonight's discussion and this is the fourth part of our outline and we spent a long, long time getting the first three parts and so the fourth part of our outline is that the Holy Spirit is abused. The Holy Spirit is abused. Now, we've discussed how the Holy Spirit is a person. We've talked about how he is deity. It's been a good deal of time speaking about how he is God's agent in the world today, how he created the world, how he worked in the ministry of Christ, how he was, uh, gave us the holy scriptures. We learned how he works in the lives of Christians, and all of those things are very, very important issues for us to understand as one author said, the essential, vital, central element in the life of the soul and the work of the church is the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the, in the past nine messages, we've had a really good opportunity to look into the person and work of, of the Holy Spirit. Now, we often say, and, and this is, of course, true, that Christianity is Christ. And most Christians know a good deal about Christ. And you would expect that to be true because, of course, he is our Savior. He's the one that we first learn about. Uh, we, we learned how that Jesus came into the world to be a sacrifice for our sins. And obviously, you can't be a Christian unless you understand who Jesus is. And salvation is always put in these terms. And we talked about the power of the blood or the choir was singing about that a moment ago. We talk about the cross. And salvation is always taught in those terms that we speak of the cross of Christ and we speak of the blood of Christ and we talk about the death and we talk about the resurrection. Romans chapter 10 tells us that unless we confess that Jesus is the Lord and uh, if we do confess that Jesus is the Lord and we believe in our heart that God hath raised him from the dead, the Bible says that we will be saved. So when we talk about salvation, the focus is always on the work of Christ. And so, naturally, Christians become very familiar with Jesus. Now, you don't know as much about him as you should know, and neither do I, or all that we want to know, but that's the person of the Godhead that we do know most about. We know something about the Father, because Jesus told us about his Father. Most Christians don't know as much about him as they do about Jesus, but we understand that the Father is a loving Father, that he is the one that sent his Son into the world to die for us. The central focus of Scripture is the work of Christ, so we don't really know as much about what the Father does because, quite frankly, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the Father. It's mostly about Christ. And in fact, the manifestation of God that we will see when we get to heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he says, don't worry about that, because when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the Father is it's sort of a, a mystery to us as well, or somewhat of a mystery. But the person of the Godhead that really is the most confusing to people is the Holy Spirit. And you would think that after 2,000 years of church history that a lot of this would be cleared up and that we would understand much better about the work of the Holy Spirit than we actually do. We'd really have a good handle on it, we would think. But after all of this time, we don't know as much as we should know. And one of the reasons is for hundreds of years, actually, the Holy Spirit's work was really not much emphasized. There wasn't a whole lot of preaching about him. And then in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, in the heyday of the Puritans, there was quite a bit of teaching on the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite books comes from that time, the Puritan John Flavel, who wrote wrote a book entitled The Method of Grace, which is really a, a collection of his sermons, and the byline of that collection is How the Holy Spirit Works. And interestingly, uh, the collection of those sermons center on John 16:13 and John 14:26. And we've just read John 16:13. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of Truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and will show you things to come. And then in the 14th chapter, verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is to magnify Christ. And John Flavel in his sermons, he, he speaks a great deal about the Holy Spirit's magnification of the work of Christ. And he continually makes that point, and quite frankly, he makes it very eloquently. So it's not really the, the Spirit's intent to be taken out of his place and, and to become more the focus than Christ. And yet, at the same time, the Holy Spirit is not inferior to the Father or to Christ. And. It doesn't mean, because of what we've just read here, that we're not to know more about him and study more about him and learn about him. But we're only right when we consider the Holy Spirit when we take the approach that the Scriptures give us of who he actually is. Now, that, that's really become the great problem in understanding who the Holy Spirit is. In the late 19th century, George Smeaton complained about the Holy Spirit being completely ignored. But then at the beginning of the 20th century, things started to change. And over the past hundred years or so, the Holy Spirit has actually become a huge focus for many Christians, especially those or those who maybe some are Christians and I think many of them are not. But the Charismatics have put the Holy Spirit front and center and they claim that there are certain miracle gifts that they have that are in fact the work of the Holy Spirit but they're not now it's bad to take away from the work of the Holy Spirit but it's equally bad perhaps even worse to make outlandish claims that the things that they do are the Holy Spirit's work now much of the stuff that goes on today is not the Spirit's work Now, you remember in our study of Matthew 12, and I hope you do, do, that there was this huge intentional mix-up over what the Holy Spirit was doing. Jesus was casting out demons. The Pharisees had no answer for how he was able to do that. And so they said, you are casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus told them that it was the Spirit of God that was at work. And he told them that they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit by claiming that the Holy Spirit's work was the work of the devil. And you switch that around 180 degrees and you see how the dynamic has changed because today it's claimed that the works of Satan are actually the Holy Spirit's work. And so those who claim that the Holy Spirit is doing this are are really, I think, blasphemous because they're claiming that the evil of Satan is something that the Holy Spirit is doing. And I really think that we need to understand that many of the outlandish things that the charismatics practice are not of the Holy Spirit, and so they can't come from any other source than the devil. That's the only other source that they can come from. It's the work of Satan. And I, for one, would never want to be guilty of claiming that the Holy Spirit is doing something that he doesn't do, that it's actually Satan's work that's going on. So that's some of the things that we're going to talk about. Uh, What's going on today and the claims that are made by the charismatics and I think it's important for us to understand this because if there's any group that has contributed more to the confusion of the Holy Spirit than the charismatics, I don't know who they are. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and for the next uh, couple of three messages as we look into the Holy Spirit's work and what he's not doing and how he is abused. So I want to make this this very important point as we begin this part of our study, that knowledge of the Holy Spirit's work is achieved through Scripture. The way that we know what the Holy Spirit is doing is through the Scriptures. That there's only one way that we can distinguish between the true works of God and the false works of Satan, and that's through the Scripture. Now that's that's last week's message, that was one of the major points, and as we get into this part of our subject, we have to keep that in mind. If we are going to know what the Holy Spirit is doing, we have nothing to judge it by except what the Scriptures say. Now the charismatic movement claims that they have new revelation But new revelation is subjective. It can never be verified. Uh, The scriptures tell us there is no new revelation. And so what we have to go by is by the completed word of God. And that's really critical for us. Because since the time of the apostles, there hasn't been any other way to tell the false from the true. Well, Satan is this great counterfeiter. He, He likes nothing better than to confuse people. He's very adept at fooling people. He makes the false seem to be true. In the early church, before the Bible was finished, before the apostles had, uh, and, and the others had put the finishing touches, the last things of the Bible that were written, there was a special gift that God had given for the discerning of spirits. How, how you could tell then, before the Bible was completed, whether it was truly a work of God or a work of Satan. Now, we're going to look at that for just a second. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, you can see it here that in the days of the apostles, these spiritual gifts were still operating. And it's interesting that in the list of the miracle gifts that we have in 1 Corinthians 12, that God included this very special gift that went along with those. Now, beginning reading, in, we begin reading in verse number 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits. To another, divers kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now there you see a list of all these miracle gifts that were operating at that time that God had given. And right there in the middle of verse number 10, there's this special gift that is called the discerning of spirits. On that time, there were many people that claimed that they could do the same things that the apostles did. As we read last week, John said that there were many false prophets that are in the world. And the more that the real gifts of the Spirit were being used, the more opportunities there was for Satan to counterfeit those gifts. So the apostles had the power of discernment. Peter used that. In Acts chapter 5, when, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, he could tell when they were not telling the truth. He knew what they had done. He, he knew they made false claims. In Acts 13, there was a man by the name of Elemas who was a sorcerer. And the scripture says that Paul was filled with the Holy Ghost and he rooted that man out. He was able to tell that what this man did was false. Now, we notice here that Paul is not too kind about the activities of someone who claims that they're doing the work of God. It says in Acts 13, verse 9, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And the language there indicates that what Elemas was doing, he may well have been guilty of destroying the doctrines of the faith, that he was teaching lies, and all of this was done by by the tricks of sorcery. And so they were the works of Satan. And so he was trying to convince people that what he was doing was right, that this was the Holy Spirit operating, this is God doing that. And we just have to wonder how much different is that than what's really going on today. So the apostles had to have the power to discern spirits. And by reading 1 Corinthians 12, we know that there must have been others that had the gift as well. So what God did was to safeguard the church through this very special gift that he'd given. But as the gifts declined, and as they were starting to, to pass away and they were no longer operating, the discernment of the spirit, this miracle gift, declined as well. There wasn't any more need for the gift. Now, that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be any more false prophets. It doesn't mean that uh, there wouldn't be those who claim that they were doing uh, works by the uh, works of the spirit when they are actually the works of the devil. And there were many people that do that, did that. There, there are many people that still do it today. So how do we know who's right and who's wrong? How do we tell the difference between them? Well, we only know one way. We go to the scriptures, because when the scriptures were complete, and God's revelation was ended for all time and established for all time, there we have the criteria for distinguishing between the false and the true. If you needed another avenue of proof that there is no new revelation, all you need to do is look at this argument because if there is more revelation that's given by God, then we also have to have that gift operating. We would still have to have the discernment of spirits. We still have to have somebody who's able to do that to be able to tell when new revelation is actually given and when it's not. So what happens? When a, when a charismatic comes along and he says, Well, I've, I've got this special gift that God has given. I can do this, and this is the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I can go to him and I can say, Oh, is that correct? Well, I have the gift of discerning of spirits. And I say that your gift is bogus. Bogus. And I say that your gift is a sham. I say you're a liar. I say that you are a counterfeit. I say you're full of all subtlety, that you are a child of the devil, that you are the enemy of all righteousness, that you are perverting the right ways of God. And what's he going to say? Who's going to say who's right? Is he right or am I right? You see what happens when you don't have an objective standard to go by? Who are you going to believe? If somebody says, I have a new revelation... How are you going to believe him unless there's some way to tell whether he's telling the truth? Well, we don't have any new revelation. We have the Word of God that nails it down for all time. What are the works of the Spirit and what are the works of God? And so while the apostles were writing the Scripture, while that's going on, you have to have the gift of discernment. Somebody has to be able to tell the false from the true because we didn't have or they didn't have the completed Word of God. But now that we have it, we don't have the gift. There are no apostles today. There's no one to tell, no one to affirm the gifts. And so they've passed away. The, the Bible has been completed. That's the infallible source of truth for all time. So we go to the Bible. We go only to the Bible to verify the claims about Holy Spirit activity. Now, we're going to discuss the gifts that they claim But before we do, what we have to do, we have to look and see what the Scripture says about the cessation of those gifts. Did those gifts really cease? Do they operate today or do they not? Well, I I, I think that I can make this claim, and I think it's scriptural. You have it on your listening sheet, that the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased. Those gifts are no longer operating. The extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased. Now, tonight, we're just getting started, so we're going to look at two lines of proof to tell us that this is true. And the first one is the most important. How do we know that they have ceased? Well, the scriptural proof. We have to go to the scriptures and see what they say. And the scriptures prove to us that those gifts are no longer operating. Now, the one gift that that stands out above all the others is the gift of tongues. That's the one that you hear the most about. And I don't care what flavor of charismatic that you talk to. This is always the main thing. This is the main gift. we're going to talk about tongues a good deal later. But for now, if we can prove that there is no longer the gift of tongues, then we can bring in all the other special miracle gifts as well. Now, the gift of tongues is really the lifeblood of the charismatic movement. There are some of the charismatics that say that there is no salvation unless you speak in tongues. They say that that is the evidence that you have salvation, that you're you're able to speak in tongues. Now, some others don't go that far. They don't claim that that's your evidence of salvation, but they do say that if you speak in tongues, that you have this whole other plane of spirituality that you're living on. Now, I found this interesting comment in the official documentation of the beliefs of the assemblies of God. Now, I'm quoting directly from them. They say, There are those who give testimony to a dynamic and life-changing encounter with the Holy Spirit who have never spoken in tongues. Nevertheless, it cannot be said that they are filled with the Spirit in the New Testament sense of the term. There is an essential link between that experience and speaking in other tongues. We affirm and teach this truth because it is based upon the pattern from God's Word. We do not look upon speaking in tongues as proof of superior spirituality. It simply is a precious promise written in God's Word fulfilled in our lives. To ignore it is to miss a great blessing and come short of the New Testament pattern. I don't know how much attention you paid to what I just read. But that's what I call speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Now, on one hand, on one side of the mouth, they say, We do not say that speaking in tongues is the evidence of superior spirituality. And from the other side of the mouth, they say, If you don't speak in tongues, then you're not filled with the Spirit in the New Testament sense, and you miss a blessing, and you come short in the New Testament pattern. How are you going to reconcile those two statements? how does that make any sense? How can you say that speaking in tongues means that you're filled with the Spirit, but on the other hand, say it's not the evidence of a superior superior spirituality? Why did Paul speak about being filled with the Holy Spirit? If that's not a better position than not being filled, then why even talk about it? Why even mention it at all? But that's the kind of convoluted reasoning you get when when somebody's trying to justify a practice that's no longer uh, needed and no longer taught in the bible it's not operating so what does the bible say about it well let me call your attention to first corinthians 13 let's turn there for a minute and and this is the the great chapter on love where paul speaks of love as being the highest expression of our spirituality love he says is above all of the spiritual gifts and you can have all the other gifts, and, and he says if you don't have love, if you don't have love for God, if you don't have love for your brother, then you're just kidding yourself if you think that you're a good Christian. And then he talks about the endurance of love. He says that love will never pass away, that love is really what you might say the hallmark of heaven. I mean, what would heaven be if there wasn't any love? Love will be there forever. That's what Paul's saying. And our attachment to God is because of his love. We love God. He loves us. The enduring attachment is that love that God has for us. So we're going to say that love has to be in heaven or there is no God because God is love. Not that God is actually love itself, but that God, that's part of its character, that you can't have God without having love. So heaven is going to be filled with love. Does anybody doubt that? There's love in heaven. Now, he uses that then as a comparison. He, he shows us that love is enduring, that it's always enduring, and he says the spiritual gifts will cease. They'll pass out of existence. And the point that he's making, which do you choose? Do you choose the thing that's enduring, or do you choose the thing that will end? Well, obviously, we say love is better because love never ceases. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, the temporary nature of the spiritual gifts is brought out here. It's not Paul's major point. His major point is the superiority of love, but we still get this teaching about spiritual gifts in the same passage that he talks about love. And and he shows us the temporary nature of them. So what does he say? Look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Charity never faileth. There, of course, charity is love. Love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now, trust me on this. The charismatics have an answer for that, for that scripture. I mean, you're just not going to be able to sit down and say, well, here it is, read that. And they say, "Oh, well, you're right, that's, that's the end of it then. There must not be any gifts, any spiritual gifts any longer. No, they have an answer for this. The key is, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. So what is he talking about when he says, when that which is perfect is come? Well, the Charismatics say that that which is perfect is Heaven. That he means when when we we get to heaven, that all of these things will cease because there's no need for them. We don't need any tongues in heaven. So when we get to heaven, none of these spiritual gifts are needed. But we're not in heaven yet. And so we need the spiritual gifts. Well, let's take a closer look here. Is he talking about heaven? Look at the last part of verse 8. and We'll just use one thing here. Whether there be knowledge it shall vanish away. That's a peculiar thing, isn't it? Knowledge will vanish away. What do you think about that? Will there be knowledge in heaven? Is knowledge going to vanish away? Are we going to know less in heaven than we know now? Now, I I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of questions that I want answered. There's a lot of things that I'd like to find out about. You know, on Sunday mornings, we have the, the, the forum class, and somebody will ask me a question. Sometimes I say, well, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us a definitive answer on that. If you were here this morning, I was on the hot seat with, with, with the question that we had. It was a very, very difficult thing to answer. And so I have to say, well, I don't know. And, and if I can't answer... Uh, or if I do answer a question, I'll say that, you know, a lot of times I wish that I could do a much better job at answering questions because I'm limited by the amount of study, by, by the amount of time that I've spent in the Scriptures on a particular subject. So I wish that I could answer questions, questions better. Now, I also know this, that, I, that I've spent my life studying Scripture. And, and that's why I'm teaching the class and not you. And, and if I have questions, then I know you've got a lot of questions. And, and I get a lot of questions on, on, on Sunday mornings. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people ask. Lots of things you don't know. That's why we have a forum class. So what do you think? When you get to heaven, are you going to remain ignorant? Knowledge ceases when we get to heaven? If it does, then you've got a real problem. But I don't want to be unfair, and I don't want to misrepresent what this what they think that this scripture actually means because the knowledge that's spoken of here is actually the special gifting of the spirit that people can know things that they haven't learned see that, that's how the apostles were able to gather all of this knowledge and how the apostle paul got the things that he knew is because there are some things that god just opened up their brains and poured the knowledge in there were things they didn't have to learn And that gift of the Spirit, the gift of knowledge, is one of the things that we find in the New Testament times that people in certain instances could... God would just give them the knowledge. They didn't have to learn it to go through a process. Well, does that help the charismatic Any? Well, no. It only makes his interpretation worse because the knowledge that we have in heaven is all that kind of knowledge you imagine the things that you're going to see in heaven that you had no idea were there, that you could have no understanding if you saw them? The Apostle Paul was able to see into heaven, and he said, there are things I can't even explain to you. I can't tell you what it was like. It's not lawful for me to even utter those things. So do you think there are going to be some people when you get to heaven that are in first grade of divinity school? and they have to learn and then there are some in the 6th grade and they know a little bit more and there are some in the 12th grade of divinity school and they're learning things about God. No. And you know why that's not true? Because when we get to heaven, God is going to give us perfect knowledge of Jesus Christ, things that we don't know. And you know why he does that? Because the scriptures teach that to know Christ more is to love him more. So the more that you know about him, the more that you can love him. And that's why you need to be studying scripture right now. If you want to love Christ more, get into his word. See what the Bible says about him. Spend your time there learning about him and you will love Christ more. So when we get to heaven, there we have all this knowledge that God gives, a perfect knowledge of Jesus Christ so we can love him supremely in ways that we da- can't love him now because of the sinful flesh that we're in. So the passage is not talking about heaven. These gifts have ceased Supernatural knowledge is not a gift that we have today. Prophecy is not a gift that we have today. The gift of tongues is not a gift that we have today. All of these things ceased, and they ceased because they are no longer necessary, and they became unnecessary when we received the completed word of God. Now, we're going to talk more about that later. Maybe this issue we could, we could bring up, that there are some people who believe, yes, they have ceased now, but they will be resumed later. And you say, well, when would that be? Well, there's some who believe, and I think there could be scriptural evidence for it that we'll look at in a, in a little while down the road, that in the millennial kingdom, that tongues could begin again in the millennial kingdom. But that's a different dispensation from what we're living in now. We don't need the tongues today. Now, we're running out of time here, so I've got to hurry on here. I want to look at this one other avenue of proof that the gifts have ceased And number two is the historical proof. Well, the historical proof takes us back to the first century, and it stretches through church history all the way to the beginning of the 20th century when the Charismatics came along, and they said that this gift of tongues is still operating today. And they say, if you can just get the right amount of the Holy Spirit, then you can jabber away all you want. Now, now we can go to the Bible... And we can start with the historical succession of miracle gifts. Now, let's stick with tongues for a minute, because that's the big one. Uh, That's the one that's always used, and that's the one that everybody says, that's the real proof of living according to the New Testament pattern. Are tongues actually the New Testament pattern? Well, we go to the book of Acts. And that's the New Testament's book of history. I hope that you know that. Acts is the history of the church in the first century. The Old Testament has its books, the historical books, First and 2 Samuel, First and 2 Kings, and so on. And Acts is the historical record in the New Testament. So it tells us all about what was going on in the establishment of churches in the first century. Now, keep it in mind, the charismatics use tongues as The proof that the Holy Spirit is working in a Christian's life. Some of them say salvation is dependent on it. Others, like the AG, say a great blessing is missed, that you're not living according to the New Testament pattern if you don't speak in tongues. But you know that in the whole history of the book of Acts, there are only three instances where anyone spoke in tongues. The first one is in Acts chapter 2. That's on the day of Pentecost. Everybody should be familiar with that. Acts chapter 2, and that's when the Holy Spirit accredited the church. That's when the Holy Spirit gave it its power. And we could say that the coming of the Holy Spirit was the validation of the Jewish church because it was only Jews that were present in that, in, on the day of Pentecost when this happened. The second time is in Acts chapter 10, and that's when Peter preached to the Gentile Cornelius. The Gentiles were given the like sign that the Jews had in Acts chapter 2, and so they began to speak in tongues. And that was what we might call the validation of the Gentiles, that the Gentiles are to be brought into the church. Then the third time is in Acts chapter 19. And that's a peculiar incident, very much different than we might suppose, because the people in Acts chapter 19 that spoke in tongues were those same believers that we've talked so much about that didn't even know the Holy Spirit had been given. Now, I'm going to take you back there for just a minute, just in case you've forgotten about it. And I'm going to read, or I'm not going to read to you the part that's familiar. I mean, we we spent a great deal of time in the second verse, and that's where the question is asked. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we haven't heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. But we can read a little bit further and go down to verses 5 and 6. And Paul explained to them about the Holy Spirit. And then the Scripture says, When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now, here is the peculiar thing about this passage. They didn't speak in tongues until Paul laid his hands on them. I'm of the opinion that nobody spoke in tongues, that it wasn't the normal thing to do unless the apostles laid their hands on them. In the second chapter, when they spoke in tongues there, there were, the apostles were the first ones to speak in tongues. They're the originals. They're, they're the church and the 120 that were with them. The apostles were there, and that's when they spoke in tongues. In Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius spoke in tongues, who was there? Peter. Peter was present. An apostle was there when they spoke in tongues. Acts chapter 19, when these people spoke in tongues, who's there? Paul, an apostle. And he laid his hands on them. So in the entire book of Acts, in the history of the church in the first century, the only times that are mentioned are those three times. So if if tongues is so prominent and tongues is so necessary and if tongues is a pattern for New Testament believers, then why isn't the book of Acts just filled up with people speaking in tongues? And then you have this proof in the New Testament. uh, Something I think even more damaging to the charismatics, that there's only one other book in the entire New Testament that even mentions speaking in tongues. Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament, maybe 14 if you count Hebrews. He is the apostle of Christian doctrine, the apostle of the church, and the only time that he mentions tongues is in 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he spent more time dealing with their abuses of the practice and and preaching against those abuses than telling them that they ought to all be doing it. So... 1 Corinthians, we look at it, that's one of the earliest of Paul's letters in the New Testament. It's the only one he mentions speaking in tongues and none of the rest of Paul's letters have any mention of it at all. Now let me show you something though special about Galatians and and those of you that come on Wednesday nights you'll you'll recognize this, that uh, we've been studying Galatians and in the third chapter of Galatians the Apostle Paul is dealing with the Galatians over what what I've called their stupidity their stupidity of falling for a works justification when they had received the truth of the Holy Spirit and they had actually been saved. So Paul says to the Galatians in uh, Galatians 3, verse number 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now he says, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Now he's talking about you are people who have the Holy Spirit. Anybody question that? That's what he's talking about. You have the Holy Spirit. How did you get him? By the hearing of faith or did you get it by the works of the law? Where is there a more perfect time, if tongues is the New Testament pattern, for Paul to say, Then how did you speak in tongues? How, how, did you, how, how did you speak in tongues? Wasn't that evidence that the Holy Spirit's come to live in you and it had nothing to do with the works of the law? I think that would be the best proof that Paul could use, wouldn't it? I mean, if that was the New Testament pattern, that people got filled with the Spirit and they spoke in tongues, then Paul would say, look, you spoke in tongues. You must be saved. You must have been saved by the hearing of faith, not by the works of the law, because you spoken in tongues. But then you read Paul and you go on and you look at Galatians. You get into chapter 5 and he talks about the work or the fruits of the Spirit. He mentions nothing at all about speaking in tongues. He mentions nothing at all about miracle gifts. Then you get to Peter. He doesn't say anything. James doesn't say anything. Jude doesn't say anything. And there you have all the writers of the New Testament right there. And none of them but Paul in one book says something about speaking in tongues. Now, if if that is the normal pattern, if that is something that somebody had to show to have the filling of the Spirit, why weren't these writers of the New Testament talking about that continually? Why weren't they saying, pray for this gift? You need this gift. You need to, to have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You need to speak in tongues. But they never say anything about it at all. And there's a good reason. It wasn't a normal pattern. The gifts, was already, they were already fading away, and by the last apostle, they were no more. And 1 Corinthians is a great stopping point. Paul said it right there in the 13th chapter. And so after the first century, the thing is practically gone from church history. There are only slight references to it in the next 2,000 years, and most of those reference have to do, references have to do with heretics and lunatics. You I mentioned the Puritans in the first part of the message. They recovered some of the preaching, teaching about the, about the Holy Spirit. There wasn't any group like them before or since except maybe the apostles. There was nobody that taught sanctification of the Spirit and lived it like the Puritans did. We still have their legacy in our vocabulary. We say when, when somebody lives in strict holiness, what do you say they are? puritanical. And and when we're, we're, we, we try to be sanctified and separated in our living, people say well you're just puritanical. Do you know something about the Puritans? You can scour all of their writings. You can look at everything that they wrote. You can read their history. They're the godliest people that ever lived on the planet probably as I said outside the apostles. But you know something? They never spoke in tongues. And in fact, An idea like that would have been so preposterous to the Puritans if you know anything about them that they would have put those kinds of people in stocks. They would have called them witches and warlocks, probably burned them at the stake. You know why? Because they would say, that's Satan's work. You don't find that in the Bible. You don't find that in the Holy Scriptures. If it's not the Holy Spirit's work, then it's work of Satan. And if you do that, it's to the what do you call it, the the funeral, or the, the, the pyre. To, 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 you're going to be burned at the stake if you do that. Now, I'm not advocating that we burn charismatics at the stake. That, I'm not saying that. But that's that's the idea that Christians had about such things. This is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm out of time, but that's where we're going with this. We're going to look into this more. We're going to look at some of the fantastic claims that are made. We'll look at the chaos and confusion that's caused by it. And we call it simply what it is, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of God. And I'm not trying to be mean about that, and and I'm uh, not trying to run down charismatics, uh, I mean, to this degree, that we want to chase them down and just beat the living daylights out of them or anything like that. But they need to understand this. They need to know the truth, and they're way off on this issue Satan counterfeits the things of God, and that's one of the things that he does. And this is why we have to keep asking the question, who is the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit doing? Which are his works and which are not? We need to know those things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the truth that you show us. Lord, I I just pray that, that you would lay this upon our heart, that the only place that we can go to get the truth Of the Holy Spirit's work, the truth of what you're doing in the world is in the scriptures. Help us to be good students of it. And and as I said a moment ago, we really do need to learn more about you because to know you better is to love you more. And that's one of the things, that is the thing that we really need in our lives. We need to know you better and love you more. Bless our people. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation